Lord, uh, you, you call us your sheep, and um, sometimes we wander, sometimes we get lost, sometimes you need to rescue us, um, sometimes we're black sheep, and uh, Lord, I pray that as the shepherd, you would draw your sheep, and you would encourage the timid, challenge the defiant and bring glory to yourself. Thank you for the cross, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have been going through uh, John's gospel. And uh, last week we looked at the last part of John chapter 10. And there's so much in there that we may hover around John 10 part B for a while. Okay? Um, but we, what we focused on last week was this verse. Oh, no, it wasn't that verse. It was. <laughs> it was uh, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And we explored that mystery of the oneness of God in three persons. Okay? But right before Jesus talks about he and the Father being one, he says this, they, we sheep, will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's a promise of protection, talking about uh, protecting our salvation. Okay? Now, um, I've always heard that a, a good preacher should do two things. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Okay? Now, who are the comfortable? Well, the comfortable are unsaved people who are resting comfortably in their self-deception. They need to be awakened to the eternal peril that their soul is in. They're comfortably living life thinking all is good when in reality they are not saved. Those are the comfortable. But then there are the afflicted. The afflicted are those sheep that are truly saved, but they're doubting, they're questioning their salvation, or they're living in fear of losing their salvation. Occasionally, and I, I'm not going to do this, but occasionally I will do a little survey uh, with college students or high school students or in church uh, the, the question would be, how many of you have ever seriously questioned or struggled with your salvation? And I would say the majority of Christians at some point in their life do struggle with the question of their salvation. So today, the purpose of the sermon is to comfort the afflicted. Okay? Now, there's a danger in comforting the afflicted and that is that it might be comforting to the comfortable. Okay? Um, but that's, you know, uh, that's the... Uh, you, you can also do the opposite. You know, you can, in trying to afflict the comfortable, afflict the afflicted. So um, this is primarily directed at those who are agonizing. Am I saved? Have I lost my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? So what I'm going to do 
Now, I have six clarifying questions, and then if you count the lines in your bulletin, there's only five. That's my fault. Okay? I'm not going to give you that much comfort. Right? <laughs> you only get five clarifying questions to help deal with this, this issue. Um, can I lose my salvation? Right? So here's the first question I want us to ask ourselves. Do I desire to be saved? You know, we, we just sang about coming to Jesus. Right? Do you desire to come to Jesus and have him save you? Right? I've shared before that I went through a, a very dark period in my life, even as a pastor, questioning whether I was saved. And my problem was I didn't see enough fruit in my life. I didn't see enough joy in my life. I didn't see enough zeal for the Lord or enough love for people. And I convinced myself I was not saved. And then after a lot of, let's put it this way, a lot of self-inflicted and Satan-inflicted agony, I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon on John 6, 37. We've already covered this verse, but it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, don't worry about that. That gets into all that predestination stuff. That's not where I, I don't want to get, I don't want you to get hung up on that. Here's what I want you to get hung up on. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And it hit me. I was coming to Jesus saying, I don't think I'm saved. I don't think there's enough fruit. Save me, save me. And Spurgeon basically said, do you not take him at his word? Do you think that if you honestly come to him and pour out your soul and ask him to save you, that he will toy with you like a cat toys with a mouse? Believe him. So I think we, are, we live in a very subjective, feeling-oriented world today. And some people are, are struggling with their salvation because they're waiting for some feeling to come over them. That's great. You know, some, some of your testimonies, you, they're very dramatic. And you are overwhelmed with the love of God or conviction or relief or what. And you know what? Other people truly come to Christ and there's very little emotion. Are you placing your faith in your emotion? Or in Christ. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So here's the question. Have you come to him? Do you want him to save your soul from hell? Are you trusting in him and what he did on the cross? Then believe him. Right? Sometimes faith involves a fight. Satan, get behind me. You promised that you will not cast me out, Jesus. I come to you. Now, um, I've got to be careful how, how I, I phrase this about sacraments, okay? Sacraments don't save you. Baptism, baptism doesn't save you. The uh, communion doesn't save you. But 
if you've come to Jesus, a way to express that is by getting baptized. It's an expression of faith. It's a picture of being cleansed of your sins. You're united into his death and his resurrection. It's not some magical, mystical thing. But if you've come to Jesus, why haven't you gotten baptized? Get baptized. Communion. Now, today's the second. Is it the second or the first? It's the second Sunday of the month, right? Okay. Typically, we have communion on the second Sunday, but we're going to wait till next week. But communion is also a way to express your faith, to renew your faith. I trust in his blood. I trust in his broken body. It's not just a little routine we go through. It's a, an expression of faith. It's a way to come to Jesus. Right? So, do you want to be saved? Do you want to come to the cross and have him cleanse you? Do it. And he will. And believe it. I, w- I want to hear an amen on that one. Okay, all right, all right. Number two, do I understand the beauty of justification by faith alone? Now, I don't know why this is, but some people can go to church their entire lives, and sometimes they can go to very good Bible-teaching, gospel-preaching churches and still not get the beauty of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the whole doctrine upon which the Reformation, uh, the, the church split in the 1500s over this issue. And it's kind of, you know, it, it becomes important and then it kind of fades away and becomes important and fades away. And I think we're in a, in a place today where the beauty of justification by faith alone has been kind of downplayed for a million other things. This is, this is the glory of the gospel. So um, I get to do some hospice work where I talk with people who are on their deathbed. And um, those who are able to talk, uh, I'll say, I'm, I'm a pastor and um, I'm here to talk with you about uh, any spiritual needs and pray for you. And I'll, I'll, I'll say, did you go to church? What kind of church background are you from? And they'll tell me their church. Oh, I loved church. I sang in the choir. Was the chairman of the board, whatever. And I'll say, are you ready for heaven? Yes, I'm ready for heaven. Now, why do you think you're going to heaven? Well, the way I see it, I'm a pretty good person. And then I say, what about Jesus? Oh yeah, I believe in him. What does he have to do with you going to heaven? You've got to believe in Jesus. Almost like believing in in Jesus is one of the good works you have to do to add to your other good works to get into heaven. I said, what about the cross? Oh, he died for our sins. How do you get into heaven? Well, the way I see it, I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> You're not saved by your goodness. Okay? 
So, so, and, and this is a verse, if you sit under my preaching, you're going to hear it a million times. I, I would say it's our family verse. Um, this was Billy and Anna's verse at their wedding. For by grace, grace means um, a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now is that faith plus what we do or is that faith alone? And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Not as a result of works. Not as a result of works. You're not saved by what you do. So that no one may boast. You don't get to stand before God and he'll say, why should I let you in? Well, I believed in Jesus and here's my list of good things I did. And then God says, oh, great, come on in based on Jesus and your list. No, no, you're not saved by your works. Now, you say, do you mean works have nothing to do with salvation? No, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, he's got a whole bunch of good works for you to do. They're already predestined. So if you say you're saved and there aren't any works, something's not adding up here. But you are not saved as a result of works, but you are saved for good works. Okay? Now, you say... um, What's the difference? His righteousness, his death on the cross, is something solid you can stand on. Your works are pretty weak and flimsy. They better be there. But you can have assurance and confidence based on his works, not on your works. So I... I, I try to as much as I can, especially with people on their deathbed, is just tell the story of the thief on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is dying, and there's two thieves, and one of them repents, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And remember doesn't mean think about me. It means act on my behalf. And Jesus says to him, today, You'll be with me in paradise. What works did he present to God to get into heaven? None. What happens is when you place your faith in Jesus, your sin is put on Jesus, and his perfect life is given to you. Your sins are paid for, and his record is is posted to your account. Not my record, his record. So here it's spelled out in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Okay? He was made sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness is given to us. Do you glory in that message? Or have you messed it up with 
he died, I believe in him, and I have to add my works to the mix. Of course you're going to be like I was in a pile thinking you're not good enough. Okay? These are uh, magic rocks. Any of you do these as a kid? You... Uh, <laughs> I think you can get them in the dollar store for about three fifty now or whatever they're charging, right? But they're colored rocks, and you, you boil the solution, and then you pour it in an aquarium, and then overnight these crystals form, right? And I, always, I, I have this on my desk in front of me to remind me, okay? Um, if you were to, to put any pressure on these little crystal things, they'd break. That's a picture of your works. You put any pressure on them, they're going to crack. Right? The rock, on the other hand, that's not going to break. Oh, the, the, the crystals better be there. Your, your life should be filled with good works. But in the searing heat of judgment, your works aren't going to stand up. It's the rock of Christ upon which you base your faith. Okay? Or, or here's, here's, an, here's another illustration I like to use. Um, you know who that is? Mahomes, yeah. He lost yesterday, didn't he? He did, right? <laughs> it was only preseason. Don't get too excited. <laughs> but um, Mahomes is, is known for being able to look at a receiver over here and hit a guy over here without even looking at him because he's got peripheral vision, okay? You have primary vision and peripheral vision. What Satan is, wants to get you to do is get your eyes off of Jesus and the cross and onto your own works. Put those works back in your peripheral vision and focus on the cross. And you know what you're going you're gonna to see? Suddenly, good works are going to flourish in your life. Because you're not focusing on them. You're focusing on Jesus. Okay? All right. Fourth question. Do I understand the security of salvation? Now, some of you go, great, I understand that I'm saved by faith alone. But isn't it arrogant to think that I can't lose my salvation? So some people live with this constant anxiety of I'm saved today, I'm saved today, but what if I lose it tomorrow? Well, it's not arrogant to think that you can't lose your salvation. It's not arrogant to think you can't lose your salvation if Jesus promises that we can't lose our salvation. That's not arrogance, that's just believing him. And here's the passage in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And I understand in the Greek that's never, ever, 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 ever perish. And no one snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand and I and the Father are one and that's what we focused on last week but here we have the promise of security that he's holding us in his hand and nobody can snatch them out. Okay? Now, 
somebody comes back and says, that's great. He's got us. Nobody can get us. Nobody can snatch him out of our hand. But what if I, as a sheep, fall out of his hand? It's not his fault. It's my fault. What if I stumble and fall? Or what if one night I just lose my mind and jump? Can't I lose my salvation? Can he keep me saved? Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Yeah, he can keep you from falling. Now, some people get all tangled up because they go, well, what about free will? What about my responsibility? And, and here's where I would say some of us need to quit fighting against the mystery that exists between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Both are true. How they fit together, I don't know. But here, I'm claiming his sovereign promise to keep me saved. Does that turn me into a robot? Nope. I don't feel like a robot. Right? I feel like I'm making choices. I'm responsible for my sin. I'm responsible for what I do. Yet, he promises to keep me saved. Really, that's what it boils down to for a lot of people. It's a philosophical problem. They can't synthesize the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Therefore, they have no assurance of their own salvation because they figure, I was the one who brought the faith. I am the one who can lose the faith. And I say, I think he's the one who gave me the faith. I'm really exercising it, and he's keeping me. Okay? That doesn't, that's not permission to be, become lazy, but he wants us to have assurance. Let me give you another verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, now I'm going to highlight some words. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay? So what I want you to see here is that there is a chain that starts in eternity past and foreknew people debate what does foreknew mean does it mean he looks into the future to see what we're going to do or does he forechoose let's not even worry about that but in eternity past he foreknows us and then he predestines us and then in time he calls us and when we believe he justifies us and then in eternity he glorifies us now uh, that's a, an unbreakable chain that starts in eternity past that ends in eternity future. Now, the, the key words, like we could look up all these theological words and spend a month studying them all, but don't miss this word, those. You see, the ones foreknown, those are the ones who are predestined, and those are the ones who are called, and those are the ones who are justified, and those are the ones who are glorified. Those is just important 
as the big theological words. And it makes an unbreakable chain, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Nobody, and I don't mean to be crass, but nobody falls off the Jesus bus. Oh, I don't like all that predestination stuff. Then you're on your own with security of salvation. But if you can embrace it, wow, what a solid foundation to stand on. Okay, Let me give you another verse. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and, th- and that's past tense, we have been. So if you're raised in a Roman church, justification is a process. Protestants say the moment you believe, you have been justified. What does that mean? Declared just. Based not on your record, but based on Christ's record. Since we have been justified by faith, guess what we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me say this. If, you, if your theology is a mixture of your justification, being believing and doing works and losing it and gaining it and losing it and gaining it, you cannot have peace. How can you have peace thinking that if today I'm saved, but when I'm 90 on my deathbed, I could blaspheme and lose it. How can you have, have peace? God wants you to live in the joy and the freedom of the security of salvation. Okay. All right, so now, some of you are going, this is all great, this is all great, but what about... The hard verses. Okay? Because there are a bunch of hard verses. And we just don't cover those. No. <laughs> and, and by the way, um, when, when you do theology, so, some people do it this way. They, they, they say, well, I take this position, and the, the other side, they have their verses, and the other side has their verses, and you lob verses. What about that verse? What about that verse? And the way you do theology is you take them all and you see how do you fit them all together. Okay? So what about the difficult passages? Okay? Um, So let's bring up Judas, an apostle whom Jesus chose to be an apostle. And this is, this is Jesus' prayer before he's going to the cross. While I was with them, talking to God, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. So there's his, his guarding. And not one of them has been lost. Oh, 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 except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. Now some people read this and they go, I was able to keep them all. Oh. One got away. One sheep jumped. And I lost him. Okay. Well, I think to conclude that, you have to take the word lost to mean 
he was saved and lost his salvation. I have guarded them and not one of them has lost their salvation except the son of damnation or destruction. Well, first of all, he's called the son of destruction, which means that characterized his whole life. Okay? But rather than reading this, not one has lost their salvation, why not just read it, not one of them has been lost to hell, oh, except the one son of destruction. His lostness was not that he had it and lost it, it's just people who go to hell are lost. And we know that Judas never believed from the beginning in John 6. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning, and this is John's words, not mine, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. It's not that Judas believed and lost it. He never believed from the beginning. Okay? Hebrews 6. Now, if I believed you could lose your salvation, this would be my verse. Okay? For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Okay? The light bulb's gone off. Who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Okay? It's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. So, uh, people read this, and they get, look, they're saved. They've been enlightened, they've tasted, um, and they have fallen away, and they can't be renewed to repentance. Case closed. Well, here's what I would encourage you to do. Zero in on those words, enlightened, tasted, shared. Enlightened, tasted, shared. Are these words describing those who were fully in and then fully fell away? Or are these people like there are in every church, are these people those who are on the edge? They're enlightened in the sense that they're learning. They've learned a lot of Bible, but they've never come to a knowledge of the truth. They've tasted, but they've never swallowed. They've shared in, but they're never all in. In fact, isn't it interesting that Scripture itself makes a distinction between tasting and drinking? Right before Jesus is crucified, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Some of you have been tasting. And there's a danger taste, 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 but not drink. There's a danger that when you fall away, there's, there, there's a point of no return. Don't just taste. Receive him. Drink him. Okay. So, so the point is, these verses don't show that a true believer can lose their salvation. Let me give you another one. Now, this talks about the end times. And because 
lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. See the wicked times we're in? You see some of the things that go on in the streets? And the division and the hatred there is. And I think what he's saying is here, the, the love of many professing people will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay? The news can dry you in and make you cold and test whether your faith is real or not. Right? Now, what about this enduring? I thought the minute you, you believed you were saved. Yeah. You're not saved by your works. But if you're saved, there will be works. And if you're saved, guess what? Your faith, your faith is not just a dot. Your faith will endure. God's faith that he gives you is supernatural faith. It's not human. It's supernatural faith that will endure to the end. Those who don't endure, you know, the parable of the four soils. There are, there's the, the middle soils that initially show interest, but they fade away. It wasn't real. They were never saved. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us to the end. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us us. Now you go, well, what's the difference whether you can be saved and lose it or whether you're deceived and you never had it? Either way, you're lost. Well, here's the difference. If you can be saved and lose it, that's on God. He, he can't keep us. If we're deceived, that's on us. One last one. This is this one that trips. Oh, two, two more, two more. Okay. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now you read that and you go, well, surely these people were saved. They couldn't do all these miracles and, and, and they, they just lost their salvation. Well, the verse itself says, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Not I knew you and you lost it. No, you were never in. Which I think is a good warning. Just because the guy on TV can do miracles and cast out demons. Jesus said there's plenty of charlatans who never knew the Lord. I, I always like to say this. The fruit of the Spirit is a far better indicator than the gifts of the Spirit. These people somehow, you know, maybe God was working through false prophets. I, I don't know how to explain all this, but they were never saved. Okay? Last, last verse. Paul's talking about watching his behavior 
but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, some people say, well, Paul would never put himself in the category of somebody who, who, who might not be saved. So disqualified here must mean disqualified for rewards. Well, um, that, that word in the King James is translated that I myself should not be a castaway. I think it's referring to salvation. So is Paul saying he, he feared that he could lose his salvation? No. You see, I don't think Paul or Jesus or Scripture teaches once saved, always saved. I think it teaches that you are saved and true salvation is a persevering salvation. Faith that saves is a persevering faith. And Paul is simply saying, okay, and here, here we have the sovereignty of God, but here we have the responsibility of man. Paul is saying, I'm not going to take it for granted and just live a wild life and then it be revealed that I'm a castaway. I think this verse is saying, I'm saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because of that, you know what? I do the things that Christians do to keep their faith alive. I go to church. I read my Bible. I go to Bible study. I can't just live my life without discipline or it will be revealed that I was a castaway in the end. Okay? Now, um, I fear that ending on these tough verses <laughs> might rob us of the joy of the main point. Okay, the, the main point is, if you're his sheep, you hear his voice, you follow him, and he holds you in the palm of his hand. And you can never perish. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? Would you bow your heads? And if you are a person who has agonized, maybe you're in the middle of agonizing over your salvation, maybe you're examining your works, maybe you're, uh, you're living in fear of losing your salvation, will you please just come to Jesus? Place your faith in Jesus, not in your works, in His work. And take Him up on His promise, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Lord, give assurance to your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, worship team, come on up, please.